Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. We'll open up our Bibles now. Our first Bible reading is from Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your diseases, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember the day to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. Our next Bible reading comes from Hebrews chapter 9. but worship in the earthly tabernacle. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests carried regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. 
The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They only are a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying into the time of the new order. But when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all <clears throat> by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect, only the one who has made it living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet, wool and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacles and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but he has appeared once for all at the accumulation of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to all those who are waiting for him. Thanks for reading, Kath. Good job. 
It's a lot of Bible text you read. That's great. Psalm 103, Hebrews 9. Keep Hebrews 9 open in front of you. Uh, if you attempted to close it, whatever it was on your gadget or in the Bible that you've got in your hands, it'd be good to keep it open as we have a look at that today. As we continue our series, Hebrews, True and Better. If you don't know who I am, I'm Simon. Uh, I, I'm one of the elders here at City Light Church, North Adelaide. It's lovely to see you here. And um, I promise you the gas will be fixed again one day. Um, it's... Yeah, anyway, let the reader understand. Last week, um, last week we were in Hebrews chapter 8, and I, I had a little bit of a go at people in the church who might like Hewlett-Packard or other forms of computing gear that's not Apple. Um, someone wrote to me yesterday and said, I'm catching up on your sermon from last week, Jacko, and I feel attacked for having an HP. And I'm like, get over it. No, um, I didn't say that. Um, Last week, that was last week. Today, I want you to turn to the person next to you. I haven't done this for a while, actually. I feel like I'm out of form. But I want you to turn to the person next to you and discuss whether you are a Lego person or a Lego person. Are you Lego or Lego? Have a quick chat to the person next to you. This shouldn't take too long, right? Have a quick chat. Lego or Lego? I'll give you 32 seconds for it. Go. All right. That's plenty of time. Just for the fun of it, who's, who's Lego? Show of hands. Yeah, yeah, you're my people. Uh, Lego, you can, oh, wow. Fire out. Fending lots of people today. Um, who, and someone said leg, Legos. Lego. I mean, apparently that's, that's American people do that, right? If you're from America, welcome. But you're wrong, you're wrong. Um, <laughs> We still love you. Let's pray as we come to God's word. As I say all the time, that may or may not have anything to do with today, but let's pray. Uh, Father, in your mercy, would you remind us of what you've done for us, what you are doing, and what you will do for us in the Lord Jesus. As we've sung this morning, thank you that you are the same God. Uh, Father, uh, you have a plan. You are working out your plan of salvation So that men, women and children from every tribe, nation, language and tongue can find hope, forgiveness and freedom in Jesus. And so, Father, would you remind us this morning of who we are? Father, remind us of all that you've given us in Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. It was when John was at university that he began to follow Christ He had some Christian friends. They chatted to him about Jesus, about the gospel, and he was intrigued. And then during one particular week, uh, the AFES group, the Australian Fellowship of Evangelical Students group on campus, put on a series of events, and things just kind of clicked. And he began to follow Christ, and he was really changed. People noticed that he changed and how committed he was now to Christ. He finished his degree at university, he then got a job, and well, he found himself really tired at the end of the week. He went along to church, there weren't many people of his age at the church he was at, and so quite often on a Sunday, he was able to find reasons, excuses for not going. At work, there also wasn't anyone else who was following Christ, and he instinctively knew, John knew, that if they found out what he believed at work, they'd think he was pretty odd and, well, he was really keen to make friends. 
wasn't long before there was really no difference between John and the rest of his colleagues in the way that they behaved at work and even on the nights when he and his colleagues went out together. His Christian friends from his uni days were actually really worried about him and tried to express some of their concerns, but after a while, he hardly ever saw them and he stopped worrying. He was drifting. And then there's Jane. Jane grew up in church. She never really knew a time when she wouldn't have called herself a Christian. Her parents were believers, but it had become real. She couldn't say exactly when, but certainly it was real as she looked back at her former days. And to be honest, for Jane, it's quite a long time since she was really zealous about Jesus and really committed. But since life hadn't really turned out, but since then, life hadn't really turned out as she'd hoped. A couple of promising relationships didn't actually really go anywhere and she was pretty bruised emotionally by those relationships. A close family friend had died. There was bereavement in her family. Work was tough. She wasn't enjoying it very much. Life for Jane was a slog. And to be honest, the Christian life had become a slog too. Not everyone was really aware of it, though, for Jane. She was at church week after week after week, and she kind of became, she seemed like she was part of the furniture. But in her heart, she was scarcely going on with Christ. In her heart, she was asking the question, is it really worth it? That seems to be a question the Hebrew Christians are asking the, the people whom this letter, this sermon that we're looking at in Hebrews was first preached to. They'd begun the Christian life with great joy. They'd made real sacrifices for Jesus. But in recent times, things had become really challenging. Life is tough. Living as a Christian in their kind of culture was tough. They were tired of going against the flow. And it literally seems like these Hebrew Christians were going against the flow. Quite possibly on the Sabbath day, they'd be going in the opposite direction to the rest of their community. They're all heading to the temple or to the synagogue, whilst these Christians are heading along a back street, I don't know, maybe a little bit like Archer Street, to a little back room in a little house to gather with a small group of people. Pretty unimpressive just a handful, meeting in a little back room, in a lounge room, compared to the vast majority of people who gathered in their impressive synagogue or in the impressive temple. It was tough. Some of them had stopped meeting with other believers. Others were still there, but their hearts were somewhere else. And so the pastor preaches this, what I think is a remarkable sermon, to spur them on, to keep going, to stick with Jesus. And he does so, I don't know if you've noticed this over the past seven or eight weeks or though, but he uses arguments that might feel a little bit alien to us, a little bit foreign to us, because what they were tempted to go back to was the synagogue or to the temple, to a form of Judaism that's kind of involved the old covenant. We're not really familiar with these things. Most of us aren't from a Jewish background. And so I don't know, as Kath read out chapter nine of Hebrews, I wonder if a lot of it sort of went over your head. You were like, what is going on? But as the original hearers of this sermon heard these words, they would have been pretty familiar ideas. 
So I do hope you'll bear with me a little bit this morning as we look at some of the wonderful details in Hebrews 9 before us because the pastor basically says, how could you possibly go back to that when you've, what you've got in Jesus is so much better by far? And I'm confident, actually, as we understand a bit more of this old covenant stuff, we'll see afresh the wonders of what we've been given in Jesus. And if we marvel at them, think, how could I possibly drift away from that? And for those who are here this morning and you're not yet trusting in the Lord Jesus, I hope you'll see a little bit more clearly today why the friend you've come along with or why the people around you think Jesus is just that much better and so good that you might be intrigued to find out a bit more. That's my hope. So have a look with me, chapter 9 of Hebrews, verses 1 to 10, and we're going to begin, the pastor begins, we're going to begin with a little bit of Old Testament background. This is what I'm calling Old Testament foreshadowing, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 1. Now, the pastor says, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. Sanctuary was a special place where God was symbolically believed to dwell among his people. That had been the tabernacle uh, in the early days. That means just a tent. Uh, God traveled around with his people in the tabernacle, in the tent, while God's people wandered through the wilderness. The tent, when they arrived in the promised land, became more of a permanent structure, the temple. And the pastor here reminds them of things they know very well, of the religious system that they'd been brought up with. And he wants them to understand that what was designed to be permanent, that, that wants them to understand that the tabernacle and the temple was never designed to be permanent. Otherwise, as we saw last week, God wouldn't have promised a new covenant. In the old covenant, uh, the Old Testament was never regarded as the final thing. See what it says in verse 9. All this is an illustration for the present time, a visual aid, if you like. Or in the language of Hebrews 8.5, the old covenant was a shadow pointing forward to the substance that has now come in Christ. I want you to have a look at an image on the screen of the tabernacle. Look at that. There you go. That was me the other night with Sebastian, with our Lego, not Lego, no, with our Lego putting together. So if you imagine the tabernacle, that's with the tent and the stuff sort of stripped away, right? We're going into the tabernacle and there's a gate at the front and then there's the altar in the, um, the front bit there, the laver where the priests would wash their hands and their feet and things like that. And then surrounded by the red stuff is the holy place and then the most holy place. Let's go to the next image. Hey, look at that. We are now looking over the top, right, at the Lego. No, um, this is the tabernacle. So if you have a look at that image, there's the outer court, right, where the brown box is the, the altar where sacrifices would be made. There's the, the pond where you'd, the priests would wash their feet and their hands before they entered any further. That's the outer court where sacrifices took place. And then the tent has two spaces. Uh, the first is called the holy place. Only priests could get in there. Um, there's a lampstand, see the yellow strip there? That's called a menorah in Lego. No, that's called a menorah. That's the lampstand. A lampstand symbolizing the light, the presence of God. And the little brown box near the arrow is the a table that had 12 loaves of fresh bread sitting on it, symbolizing the provision of God. And then there's a barrier 
The big grey long bit is a big barrier, a veil or a curtain. It's a big no entry sign. And beyond that is the most holy place. The temple that was built in Jerusalem mirrored this structure and they called that second bit the holy of holies or the most holy place, the inner sanctum. And inside the holy of holies you found the ark which was just this like elaborate fancy box and inside the box was a bit of manna, a reminder of how God had provided bread, this interesting bread substance day after day for his people wandering in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. In the box was also Aaron's staff, Aaron, Moses' brother, representing the first priest. And then there's the, in that box as well were the two tablets of the law. Written down on there was the Ten Commandments, like the contents page for the whole law of God. And that most holy place was the focal point of the presence of God. And then in verses 6 to 10, the pastor reminds him of what happened on the most holy day of the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The details of that you can find in your Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 16. But here's what happened on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. The high priest would take two animals, a goat and then either another goat or a lamb without blemish. He'd lay his hands on the first animal and confess the sins of the people over it, and then the goat would be driven off into the wilderness, right? That's where we get the idea of a scapegoat. So a goat would be driven off into the wilderness, basically symbolically carrying the sins of the people and far away, off you go. And then laying his hands on the other animal, the high priest would again confess the sins of the people upon that animal, and then he'd, he'd sacrifice that animal in the courtyard and go into the holy place and then shockingly, amazingly, he'd keep moving, right? He'd keep moving from the holy place through on this one day of the year into the most holy place. On this day and only on this day, he'd go beyond the curtain into the most holy place, taking with him the blood of the animal that had been killed Sprinkle some of that blood on top of the ark. Symbolically, with the sprinkling of blood, the people, the people had been forgiven. Atonement had taken place. at one between God and sinful humanity. It was a visual aid. Sacrifices were repeated every day. This day of atonement, right, repeated every year. And this day of atonement would teach the people really important principles. And because they went on for generation after generation, people understood these principles and truths about God. For starters, this visual aid, this day of atonement, taught them about the holiness of God. If people think about God these days, right, they don't think of him as holy. So if we assume there is a God, right, of course we can just commune with him, we can just relate to him. Why not? Because we've got such a low view of God. I was listening to ABC Radio a few Saturdays ago. Um, Adele doesn't understand why I love talkback gardening so much. And she says, why do you listen to that? I'm like, because it's great. At the end of one of the segments, um, the two compares kind of asked people to call in and say and sort of share with them, who would you like to have afternoon tea with in your garden? Who would you like to have afternoon tea with in your garden? Various people called in. One person rang in and said, I'd like to have God over for tea. 
And I'd like to ask him why he invented rats, because they're in my backyard. (laughs) And then at the end, the person said, I think he'll be quite entertaining. And I thought to myself, I don't think you have any idea about the living God. If you think having tea in your backyard with him would be entertaining. I heard another interview. See, ABC Radio is good for you. This is BBC Radio is good for you. I heard an interview with a guy named Alec Waugh who wrote a book called God, The Biography. How about that? A brave thing to do, given that God's already done it, right? In a book called The Bible, which happens to be the best-selling book of all time. But anyway, he wrote a biography of God. He was asked, how would you sum up God in one word? Alec Waugh replied, plucky. Plucky. I felt like that kind of hurt. Plucky. The idea that poor old God, most people not honouring him, most people not taking him seriously these days, but he doesn't give up. Good old God. He's plucky. The God of the Bible is love, love, love. The God of the Bible is holy, holy, holy. And this visual aid right at the heart of the temple, right at the heart of the tabernacle was a reminder that you can't just waltz into the presence of the living God. He's the awesome God. Our God is a consuming fire. It taught them about the holiness of God. It also taught them about the seriousness of sin. Our culture doesn't use that word very much anymore. We don't use it very much anymore. Actually, we like to use words like messy or broken. But this visual aid reminded the people of God about the seriousness of sin. We often reserve the word sin, I think, for the people in our community who are particularly evil, particularly bad. The rest of us, we're basically good, but there are some who are very sinful. If we ever do any things that aren't good ourselves, it's not really our fault anyway. It's the fault of our parents or our education or the society or the institutions. And because we're all generally good, well, of course, God loves us. I mean, if he exists, but if he does, he certainly loves us and there's no problem. We don't need atonement because, of course, we're one with God and he loves us. This religious system was a reminder that God is holy and we're sinful. And there is a barrier between us and we can't just presume that we're friends. And it also teaches us about the principle of substitution. Have a look at verse seven. Only the high priest entered the inner room and that only once a year and never without blood. Chapter nine, verse 22. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? If blood is shed and blood gets on clothing or on the carpet, what do we do? We desperately try to scrub it out, right? Blood makes things unclean. One of the volumes in our house that gets the most use is a volume called Spotless by a woman called Shannon Lush, right? Again, if you're an ABC listener, you're just like, oh, Shannon. Basically, just use bicarb soda for everything, right? A bicarb soda, vinegar, we'll get pretty much everything out. And the whole, whole thing is like, blood, quick, scrub it out. Counterintuitive, right? But in the old covenant, blood cleanses. It deals with sin. It brings forgiveness. But how? 
Well, because the blood speaks of death. And as a sinful person approaches the holy God, we deserve, to be, we deserve to die. But God in his grace and mercy allows atonement, allows fellowship with himself on the basis of substitution. An animal dies instead of the person. And their blood, the blood of the animal, sprinkled in the presence of God, in a way basically says, death has occurred. And God's justice is satisfied by the death of another. The holiness of God, the seriousness of sin, the principle of substitution, all taught by this visual aid. But it's just a visual aid. The pastor wants us to know the whole system is not sufficient in itself. It points beyond itself. It's limited in what it can achieve, right? Limited access. Verse 7 said, only one man, the high priest, once a year. In verse 8, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. And there it was, a symbol of the nearness of God and yet the distance of God. You couldn't go into the holy of holies. Limited access and limited cleansing. Verse 7 speaks about the sacrifice of the Day of Atonement only applying to sins committed in ignorance. Those breaches of God's laws that they didn't even know they were doing, just accidentally. I don't know about you, but I consider, I commit many sins by accident. But like you, I do many, 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 many things I know are sinful. I can't use the excuse of ignorance and they weren't dealt with on the Day of Atonement. And verse 9, the sacrifice wasn't able to cleanse the conscience. Verse 10, for they are only a matter, these rituals, only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. Effectively, those made you outwardly clean, but didn't deal with our heart. So they never made the person truly fit for the presence of God. That's why the curtain remained firmly in place. The door was closed. That's the Old Testament foreshadowing. Let's move on to the but of verse 11 and to New Testament fulfillment. Verse 11, but, there's some great buts in the Bible, but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not part of this creation. Seen over the past few weeks, if you've been here in our series on Hebrews, that the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, is a better kind of priest. He wasn't a priest in the line of Levi, those priests who performed sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. The Old Testament spoke of a different kind of priest to come, one after the order of Melchizedek. And Jesus is the one in that line, a true and better priest. Sure, the Levitical priests had their place, but Jesus is the true high priest who functions not in a tabernacle or in a temple on earth. His ministry is in a better tabernacle. 
It was really hard, right, for those Christians who received this sermon first 2,000 years ago to abandon the temple. It had been, the synagogue had been so integral in their lives for generation after generation after generation. The pastor says you don't need that anymore. It's obsolete. Verse 11, Jesus went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with human hands, not part of this creation. That's just a model of the old one, that old one. Chapter 8, verse 5. They, the old priests, serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. Jesus operated his ministry in the presence of God in heaven itself. So on the day of atonement, the high priest took the blood beyond the curtain into the most holy place. But at Jesus' ascension, after he's lived and died and risen again and ascended to the right hand of God, Jesus entered the real thing, not the model of God's dwelling place. Verse 24, Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the real one. Wonderfully, Jesus entered heaven itself, now to appear for us on our behalf in God's very presence. A better tabernacle, and he also offered a better sacrifice. Verse 12, he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood. You see, not only is Jesus the great high priest, he's also the perfect sacrifice. The animals offered for generation after generation were not a sufficient sacrifice or substitute for a human being. They pointed beyond themselves to the ultimate perfect sacrifice that Jesus offered. Wonderfully, as we've been looking at Hebrews, we just keep reminded all the time, Jesus offered himself for us. He's not an animal. He was a fully human person and is therefore able to fully represent us and yet he never sinned. So unlike the priests of the old covenant, they needed to offer sacrifices not just for the sins of the people, but for their own sins, Jesus never sinned. The perfect sacrifice, the perfect lamb, able to represent us so that we could stand before the Lord. He represents us. He substitutes himself for us so that we can stand in the presence of God and live you might ask, well, what about all those old people in the past? How did they get saved then? If those sacrifices didn't do the job, how'd they get saved? Answer, through Christ. As they were offering sacrifices, they're essentially saying, Lord, we trust in your provision for a substitute. They had faith. And that faith was fulfilled as the sacrifice pointed forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. They're effectively trusting in him. Jesus' death really does the job. It's striking the word translated actually once for all in our text. It comes up time and time again. Verse 12, he, Jesus, entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood. We see it again in verse 26. Jesus has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Same word in the Greek, hapax. Can you say that with me? Hapax. There you go. There's one for lunch today. Once for all to take away the sins of many. 
Old Testament sacrifices, day after day after day after day, day of atonement, year after year after year after year after year. Jesus' sacrifice, once for all. As he said, as he hung on the cross of Calvary for you and for me, what did he say? It is finished. Finished. Job done. No need for another sacrifice. This was one of the the big issues that was raised in the 16th century Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church believed in the need for ongoing sacrifice for sins. So they spoke of human priests, priests who had to wear what they call a chasuble, which was like a fancy word for a big apron, right? So as you turn up in your cool Adidas tracksuit to the temple that day, so you don't get splattered with blood, you put your chasuble on, right? They spoke of that. They had altars, right? So they spoke of altars up the front of church and they also spoke of the bread and the wine turning into the actual physical body and blood of Jesus. So effectively, the priests are offering sacrifices of the sins of last week and sacrifices this week after that, like ongoing. And the reformers said, no, no. Christ died once for all. There's no need for sacrifices. There's no need for another sacrifice. That's why, by the way, we have this beautiful table up the front here. It's just a table, yeah? With some juice on it and some bread on it where we're invited by the grace of God to come and enjoy fellowship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, where we commune for him. This is not a sacrificing altar, by the way. That's why we celebrate here at at City Light Church North Adelaide. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we stress the once for all time nature of what Jesus did upon the cross once for all. I used to work a bit in the Anglican church, um, and um, that's why I call myself a charismanglican these days. You know, sort of still a bit Anglican, love the Bible, love being reformed, but don't mind occasionally putting my hands in the air. But yeah, that's, yeah, charismanglican. One of the things I love about the Anglican church is the Book of Common Prayer. Um, this beautiful resource that we were given by two people, Archbishop Cranmer and Bishop John Jewell, who by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saturated with the scriptures, helped us understand, you know, live out the gospel in community, the Book of Common Prayer. It's wonderful. Hear these words, right, of John Jewell and Bishop Cranmer on the Lord's Supper. This is what they wrote. He, that's Jesus, made there on Calvary by his one oblation offering of himself, once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the world. I'd say they nailed it. He made there by his one oblation of himself, once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. There is no need for anything else. There is no need for anyone else. One perfect, sufficient sacrifice once offered for the sins of the world. I wonder if you've grasped that. Charles Simeon is one of my heroes. 
He was a gospel minister in Cambridge, United Kingdom, in the late 18th century and early 19th century. He went to Cambridge University uh, late in the 18th century. And in those days, to go to Cambridge University, uh, you were required to be a member of the Church of England. You had to be an Anglican and you had to take communion. Um, So he was told when he arrived in three weeks' time, Charles, you need to take the Lord's Supper. You need to go to King's Chapel, King's College Chapel, take the Lord's Supper. He thought to himself, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to take communion. I'm not worthy. And so he desperately tried to search his soul and find spiritual comfort. So he read lots of books. One of the books he read was the Bible. One of the particular books he read spoke of the significance of the Lord's Supper. And he said in that book, he was met with an expression to this effect. He writes, The Jews knew what they did when they transferred their sin to the head of their offering. The thought rushed into my mind, he says, What? May I transfer my guilt to another? Has God provided an offering for me that I may lay my sins upon his head? Oh, then God willing, I will not bear them on my soul one moment longer. Accordingly, I sought to lay my sins upon the sacred head of Jesus. He goes on, and on the Wednesday, began to, I began to have hope of mercy. On the Thursday, that hope increased. On the Friday and the Saturday, it became more strong. And on Sunday morning, I awoke early with those words upon my heart and my lips. Jesus Christ is risen today. Alleluia. Alleluia. He knew that Christ had died for him as the perfect sacrifice better tabernacle. Jesus is a better sacrifice. And as we draw to a close, through Jesus we get better results. There are three of them, and we can marvel at each one of them. The first better result, total cleansing. Total cleansing. Verse 13, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify, so, sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. How much more, verse 14, then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. All our sins dealt with. Total cleansing. Is that not a wonderful burden that's been lifted from us? Is it any wonder we sing about it? I don't want to sing again this week. You don't need me to sing again this week. But here's some, here's some lyrics, right? What can wash away my sin? I can't hear you. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains, lose all, have you got it? Their guilty stains and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. All, all. I was involved in a conference some time ago, and I had the privilege to interview a guy named David Hamilton, former IRA operative and terrorist. Shared his testimony, it was wonderful. He did two stretches in prison, David Hamilton. Uh, The first was for bank robbery. Um, The second was a much longer stint in prison. Um, I asked him, I said, what was the second longest stint for? I'm not sure if I should have asked him. What was the second longest stint for? He goes, everything. He goes, like, you imagine what terrorists do? 
I did it all. I was there for everything. He was in prison. He wasn't a believer. But while in prison, he just felt this need to explore and find out about God. He started reading the Bible. Wonderful, the Gideons had put a Bible in every cell in this particular facility. He tells us how he smoked his way through Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The pages of the Bible really helpful for rolling small cigarettes while in prison. Then he came to John. Tells of how he read John's gospel. And while reading John's gospel, felt moved by the Spirit and he recognized the significance of his sins, his inability to deal with them, and yet the deep, deep love of Jesus in his place. The night I got to interview him, I was speaking on the cross, so I asked him, David, what does the cross mean to you? And he said, it means everything. He started to cry. It means everything. Jesus died for me. He dealt with all my sin. Jesus died for us. He dealt with all of our sin. If you've never put your trust in Jesus and you sense a sense of guilt, a weight, an inability to deal with your sin, trust in Jesus. He died for you, for all your sin. I'll say this as well. You might have been coming to church for your whole life. And yet you haven't put your trust in Jesus. Trust him today. You might be here today, many of us are believers, right? You know these things. Celebrate them. Sing about them. Encourage each other with these wonderful truths. But maybe you're here today and you're a believer, but somehow there's something in your life. You know, a sin or a number of sins, right? But are just there. I was speaking to someone a little while ago who said, you know, I'm a Christian, but there's something I did in my life when I was six. This is a grown adult. When I was six, and I feel shame and guilt for that. Maybe there's something in your past that you feel ashamed of, guilty about. And you've never really marveled that Jesus completely washes, completely clean you from all sin deep within, that one included. Total cleansing. And then complete access. That's the next great result. The high priest went in once a year, but verse 24, for Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands. He entered heaven himself, now to appear for us in God's presence. He's our representative. And if our representative has been accepted in the presence of God, so have we. There's a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. The door is open and you and I can go in as sinners trusting in Jesus. Remember that no entry sign on the Lego thing, the the curtain barring access to the Holy of Holies, but for one man once a year, firmly in place, And if you know and if you've read the Gospels, the moment Jesus dies for the sins of the world, what happens in the temple? The curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. A wonderful visual visual aid that basically says, 
come in. All are welcome. Total access. And next week we'll hear the appeal again, draw near. Draw near with faith. Maybe for the first time today, you can go into the very presence of God without fear and keep drawing near to receive grace and mercy in our time of need. And I keep saying this all the time, our whole lives are one time of extended need. So let's draw near, knowing we can do that because of the blood of Jesus and receive grace and mercy in our time of need. Total cleansing, complete access, and finally certain hope. Certain hope. Hebrews 9 verse 27. Just as people are, died, are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Just pause there for a minute. Two facts that you need to know at this point. First fact, we all know this fact. We all recognise it. Everyone is destined to die. It comes to all of us sooner or later. Can't get around it. But there's another fact, says the Bible. After death, judgment. We'll all come and stand before our God, our creator, and give account for our lives, and none of us are worthy of anything but a guilty verdict. But look with me at the next verse. I'll read from verse 27. Just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. If we've trusted in Christ, he's borne our sins away. Think of that scapegoat, right? He's taken the sins of the people as far into the desert as possible, as far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103. So far has God removed our transgressions, our sins, our foibles, our flaws, our faultiness from us. And so when Christ returns, we've got nothing to fear. He's not coming a second time to bear sin. He's done that already on the cross. He's coming to bring salvation, complete salvation, the full wonders of the new creation. Where there'll be no more grief, no more tears, no more crying, no more death. The old is gone, the new has come. That's what awaits those who trust in Christ. And so there lies the challenge and the encouragement of this text. There's the encouragement, keep going. Stick with Jesus, he is worth it. Think of all you've received now. Think of the wonders to come. The best is yet to come. And yet, how much have we received already? Keep going. Stick with Jesus. But there's also the kind of the warning, right? Or the, the encouragement for those who are wavering, for those who are drifting, for those who are thinking, you know what? Eggs Benedict and a decaf soy latte at Pippo sounds better than hanging out with a motley crew at Archer Street. Come here. Stick with Jesus. Hang with him. Brothers and sisters, we're so privileged hope you can see, I hope you can feel what the pastor is doing here. 
There's not really all that much in this chapter that hasn't been hinted at in the past eight chapters. The pastor's just piling up reason upon reason upon reason for them to hold their heads high, press on rather than wilt under pressure. To remember who they are and who their God is, what the eternal son has done, is doing and will do. Our great high priest, the mediator of a new covenant that actually works. We really do have, brothers and sisters, every reason to keep going. We may be struggling with post-COVID weariness. We may be plagued with uncertainty about the future, whether that be our own future, the future of City Light Church North Adelaide, or the future of the world. We may be racked with self-doubt, or if you're a little bit like me, racked with self-loathing coming to terms with who we are and who we've become. You might be concerned about how the past events have have scarred you and shaped us. We may be battling anxiety, might be battling lust, drugs, arrogance, apathy, or a thousand other things. But hear this. Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. What does that mean? It means that we have every reason to press on, to serve, to love, to obey, to treasure, to follow to stick with and to worship Jesus. So brothers and sisters, let's do it. Let's do it. And let's encourage each other to keep going as we see the day approaching. As the band comes up to lead us in song, let's pray together. Let's pray. Just as people are destined to die once and after that face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. So he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Loving Father, our God and our King, we thank you for all that you've done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus, our great high priest, mediator of the new covenant, our trailblazer, our rescuer, our redeemer, our elder brother, and our Lord. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would work the message, the reality of your mercy and grace that you've shown to us in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, ascension, and session at your right hand. Drive it more deeply into our hearts and our minds, even into our bones that we might love you more dearly and serve you. Father, help us to commit to you more wholeheartedly, that we'd press on in the strength you supply. We ask this for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, 
more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.